sermon to be next Sunday night, um, and, and I was going to sort of use it as a wrap-up to our question and answer, and it would not have, uh, probably not have been as repetitive as it might be, and I will try to not make it be. But anyway, we had to reschedule. Wes had to go over to Wharton this afternoon, so we had to reschedule, and that's one reason why you see these sermons back to back like this. A couple of other things, though, of note. Um, you guys, men, remember next Sunday night uh, we are going to have our uh, business meeting and be discussing the theme. And so uh, make sure that you take note of that. And also, uh, for those of you that are interested in the movie night, uh, you may have seen the announcement in the bulletin this morning. We are not watching a movie uh, called XXXXXX. Um, that's not a typo. It's just that I haven't made up my mind which movie we're watching. So, But I wanted to make sure you knew the date. We are definitely going to do it the first Friday night uh, of next month. But I don't know what movie yet. I got it narrowed down to a couple, but I didn't make up my mind on it. So that's what's going on with that. All right. Without any further delay, let's get into the lesson. This morning we had a lot of questions, interesting questions, about the church. Um, I think one can see... Um, there are always trends, it seems like, in these questions. It's not decided ahead of time. No one knows uh, virtually what somebody else is asking and that kind of thing. But I think you see some, it's interesting how the minds of people are running, some of the things that they wanted to know about and so forth. And one of the, the things that I want to emphasize, and we will throughout this lesson, this is not going to be one of those where you know there's a whole lot of new information or anything like that. It's very pardon the pun, foundational. But I do want to emphasize um, the idea of the foundation of the church, without which, as we know, if the foundation is not sure, if it's not firm, um, then the whole falls, if the structure is unstable. And so we want to emphasize that, and I do, in, in our lesson tonight. I think when a person first visits a church of Christ, a lot of questions this morning about that, but when a person first visit such a place, they immediately begin to take notice of how exact we are, you know, how precise we are about things, how much of a demand. And indeed, one of our visitors made a comment, and I thought this was interesting, I didn't, not by design, but one of our visitors made a comment leaving this morning about, you know, it was very interesting how much we're concerned with asking questions. The very fact we would, you know, and, and I guess I just kind of take this for granted and I'm sure you do as well. It doesn't, for us to do the kind of lesson we did this morning, doesn't seem out of the ordinary. And yet to the visitor, it was almost amazing that we would have such an open atmosphere where people are allowed to ask things and expect an answer back and that kind of thing. I, it, we do lose that sometimes. I mean, we lose, I mean, we sort of, as Bill was talking about taking things for granted, and I think we do kind of take things like that for granted. But it is very special. And it is something that God uh, requires of us, that we have reason for what we do, that it's under the scrutiny of the question, and we should be questioning, and uh, you know, certainly striving to get the correct answer. So there's a demand for going strictly by the Bible, as you see I put on the outline, but that is so. We are trying to go strictly by the Word of God. We may miss it. Uh, you know, we, we, we're not perfect. We're human beings. But that's at least our goal. That's what we're trying for. So, again, that's the emphasis in tonight's lesson, just talking about the very foundation or laying the foundation so that the church we have here 
is, uh, is solid. I want to begin, and turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 3. I want to begin with this passage in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul was taking note of divisions that were occurring in Corinth. And you remember that, where people were saying, you know, they were kind of lining up behind various ones who had come there by that time and taught. The church at Corinth has been in existence for several years by this time. Paul certainly had gone there. We know Peter had gone there. We know Apollos had gone there. And so some people were saying, well, I, you know, I prefer the teaching of Paul or I prefer that of Peter, as though they taught different things. And so Paul is answering that. I want you to go with me to about verse 5 when he says this. And we'll read part of it, and then I'm going to home in on a couple of verses. He said, who then is Paul? Or who is Apollos? And we could easily put anybody in there. You know, we could who is Michael? Who is Wes? Who is anybody? Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers or servants by whom you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Paul said. Apollos watered. In other words, Paul started the process when he planted the church in Corinth. Apollos came along and taught. He watered. But it's God that gives the increase. So then, neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters is he anything, but it's God that's important. God that gives the increase. Now he that plants and he that waters are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. We are God's the King James says, husbandry, his garden, his vineyard. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me, and I think this is what we want to really focus on tonight. Look at verse 10. God gives me grace. He favors me to be a, quote, wise master builder. And Paul says, according to the grace of God, to make me a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. That's not competition. That's not one is more important. That is just the fact. I've laid the foundation and other builds on it. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon, and I'll add, thereupon the foundation. For another foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, and this is what people would do, they would build upon the foundation. And they might build with, and he's using physical terms, but notice, they might build with gold or silver or precious stones like diamonds or emeralds. They might build with wood, hay, stubble. But it's going to have to stand a test. And God is going to be the one that tests it. So every man's work will be made manifest, verse 13. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. Now obviously, if you take a torch to... Gold, silver, precious stones, if we were to have a fire, anything that's made of gold, it might melt. Silver, precious stones, but they're still going to hold every bit of their value. It's still going to be gold, silver, precious stones. Obviously, if you burn or if you put a torch to wood, hay, or straw would be the idea, it's going to burn up and be nothing but ashes. Now, he's comparing that to the work we do. And what he is saying is, the work that we do, what we build on the foundation, has got to be able to stand the test. Now, you know, metaphorically, he speaks of this, and how God will judge it, and even of the day of judgment, and how it must stand the test of time. My work, our work here, has to stand the test, and it has to stand the test against the Word of God, 
And it has to then be something that lasts, something that endures the test. So you notice he says that. Verse 14, if any man's work abide or remain, which he has built thereon or thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, like the wood, the hay, etc., then he shall suffer loss, but he himself might be saved, yet so as by fire. And again, the whole point there is, let it stand the test, and if God proves that the work is no good, then you could still be saved, but only if you're willing to get rid of the work that's not good, that's not right. And that's true of of any of us, if we're teaching. And all of us here, as we practice building up this church, and as it goes on, there are many people that have come and gone. And I listen to some of the stories, you know, some of you that are older, and you, you talk about those who have come before, those who have gone. But we mentioned Bill the other night, Wednesday night, who was here for so long. But now we're here. And it becomes our responsibility to continue the work and to continue to build. And in the end, what we do, when we ask questions like we're asked this morning, and you think about some of those questions, can we do this, can we do that? What about this, what about that? What about what other churches do that's different from what we do? And, you know, when we start talking about just because a church has Church of Christ on it, doesn't mean they practice the same thing. It doesn't mean they're wrong and we're right. It just means if we're not practicing the same thing, we've got to go back and ask the question. Is what we're practicing gold, or is it hay, stubble? And we have to, uh, you know, measure it against the Word of God, let it stand the test, and keep reassessing as we go through. And I think that's the most important part of the lesson tonight. If we, if we don't get anything else, let's come away with at least, uh, you know, reaffirmation, so to speak, that everything we do has to be measured against the Word of God. But let's talk about that foundation Paul laid in 1 Corinthians 3. I laid the foundation. I planted. The foundation, obviously, is Jesus. If we were to go back to the reading that Ekong did a moment ago, I'm not going to do that. But if we went back to Psalm 118, where part of that comes from, in verse 22, it talks about a, quote, chief cornerstone. Peter quotes that passage in 1 Peter 2 that Ekong read for us. And it speaks of Jesus. To some, a a rock of offense. To some, a stone of stumbling. But to us, a precious stone, a chief cornerstone. The very heart, the very rock, the very foundation of everything we do. If you were to go out and build, and a lot of you that are builders know this a lot more than I do, but if you're going to go out and build a structure, the foundation, I mean, it has to be what it's supposed to be or the structure's work. If you were to go back into old times and you were to think about the way they built a structure where the foundation wouldn't be a solid block of concrete, it would literally be stones that were placed together. And there are various means of connecting those stones and getting them to fit together and all of that kind of thing. But it starts with that chief cornerstone. And everything else is built from there. That is, if it's going to be a building in square, if it's going to be a building that's solid, if it's going to be a building that that will be what you want it to be, it starts with that chief cornerstone. Our chief cornerstone is Jesus. It's not Michael, it's not Wes, it's not, you know, anyone else. Our chief cornerstone is Jesus. And so Paul is saying here, what's so important is that I be a wise master builder, even an apostle, 
be a wise master builder and never forget the foundation upon which we're built. We emphasized in a couple of lessons about Peter and uh, you know, read it and emphasized it this morning that Jesus built his church on the rock, not the rock of Peter, but the rock of that faith, the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. The truth of that great confession is still what is foundational to the church at East Orange. If we are not, if our allegiance, our devotion, some of the things we talked about in my class downstairs this morning, if our devotion, our allegiance, is not to Jesus, if it's to anything else, the structure won't stand. If we come together at this place and we get carried away in pride, you know, I'm doing this or I've done that or whatever, we're going to be just as bad as Nebuchadnezzar walking out saying, look at everything I've done. When God had clearly told him, you haven't done anything. I did it. I gave it into your hand. Daniel chapter 2. But no, we have to honor and emphasize Jesus. That is our great faith. Go with me to Matthew 21. And let me close out that section of the lesson anyway by reading this quote. And I'm looking at Matthew 21. When Jesus, probably Tuesday of the crucifixion week, and was discussing with the Jews, and if you remember they had come to him, and they'd ask him some hard questions and so forth. And Jesus is illustrating the kingdom of heaven. If you'll drop down to about verse 33, he's talking about a parable here in which, and I'll just kind of summarize, God had sent a number of prophets to his people, and they'd rejected them. Finally, God said, I'll send my son, and they will surely reverence my son, verse 37. But they didn't. And so, as Jesus speaks to those Jews who obviously were not reverencing, if you'll please, not, were not holding him in reverence. As Jesus speaks to those, he begins to talk about how they caught him and they killed him. They dishonored him. And then he turns the question on them. He says, what should be done to those people? The vineyard didn't belong to them. It was not theirs. The very son, the heir, the one to whom it belonged, they murdered. What do you think they ought to do to those people? And of course, they answer back. In verse 41, uh, you know, the, the father, the, the, the uh, Lord, the, the owner, will miserably destroy those wicked men. And they're condemning themselves. And so Jesus goes on to say, if you'll notice in verse 42, our quote, Psalm 118. Did you never read that? You know, you're doing that and you're going to do that. Jesus would have, could have easily said, you're going to do this very thing this very week. And did you never read... The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, it is, and is that marvelous in your eyes? And therefore I say unto you, and let's read it carefully, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken, and on whomsoever, again Daniel 2, it shall fall, it will grind them to powder. When I think about this quote, and I think about what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, listen, you can come along and you can change the work of God. You can, you know, this church here has endured, you know, for well over 50 years. Someone may come along, another generation may come along in the distant future, or even the near future. And they may begin, it may sound innocently enough, it may begin with questions like, well, what if we were to start doing this? Or what do you think about that? 
And someone who's unfamiliar with the Word of God, someone who really is not, maybe perhaps doesn't even care about the Word of God, begins to say, I think that's a good idea. And maybe it, it's backed up with emphases like this. You know, we're in a different time. I mean, after all, this is the 21st century. We're not talking about the first century when things were different. What Jesus is saying here in this passage is, if you don't build correctly, and you don't bring forth the fruits that the house holder, the owner, wants, the king wants, it will be taken from you and given to somebody else. Now, you notice what it does not say. In keeping with Daniel 2, it does not say it will all end. That can happen to families. That can happen to our personal homes. That can even happen to our nation. It cannot happen to the church. Always with the church or with the kingdom of God, God takes it from one and gives it to another who honors and reverences His Son. And that will always be the case to the end of time. So, the question comes to us, not what do we want to do with the church here at East Orange. The question comes to us, do we want to continue to be the church at East Orange? Or do we want it taken from us and given to another? Because that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. He must be honored. He must be reverenced. He is the foundation. So I decided that I would run through in the latter part of the sermon. You can see three points here of comparisons. And, uh, you know, just kind of looking at different aspects of Jesus as the foundation. And thinking in terms of religions and so forth of the world. So to start with... I wanted to acknowledge Jesus as the Savior, and that as versus many saviors. If we've learned anything, in, and, and I'm not by any stretch going to get into presidential politics, I promise you that. But if we've learned anything, when we have such times like this, the discussion of diversity, and what different people believe, and in our time especially with all the terrorism and everything else, it comes down to a discussion of different ethnic backgrounds. I'm not concerned with that. But even beyond that, different religions. And so you can hear a number of discussions that invoke the whole idea of different religions. And while from a political standpoint or a national standpoint, I honor and believe in the First Amendment, I want it to continue... I would never want to have a leader who would come along and say, this country must be whatever religion they determine, even, and you may not understand this, but I think you do, even Christianity. Because we live in a great place. I mean, it's a wonderful place where at least to this point, there is freedom of religion, according to the First Amendment to the Constitution. I want that to continue. Because I don't want anyone to come to me and say to me, if you don't change and follow the state religion, you die. Now, I already know what I'm going to say, or at least what I pray to God that I'll have the courage to say. But I'd rather not go through that. And I'd rather not anyone that I love go through that. But you see, it comes back to a question of the different saviors in the world. The different people through whom we might be saved. And I don't have a problem when discussing it from, now, not a political standpoint, but a religious standpoint. I don't have a problem defending Jesus as the only Savior. 
I believe He alone is the Savior, and there is no other. Go with me to Matthew 1, for example. And if you're looking at Matthew 1, you remember when uh, Gabriel appeared to both Mary and Joseph, and in this case in Matthew 1, appearing to Joseph. Well, that was one of the things that he said to Joseph. Let's read a little bit of it. Now, the birth, verse 18 of Matthew 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when, as his mother Mary was, espoused. A little bit stronger even than our engagement. But espoused to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child, and of course, miraculously, by the Holy Spirit. Well, Joseph, her husband, you'll notice she's espoused, but it's stronger than our engagement. He's promised there by vow together already. So Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or secretly. But while he was thinking about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord, and it would be Gabriel, we know that, appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and this is the part that we're interested in uh, tonight, she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, in the Hebrew, and of course they would have been Jews, that would be Joshua. Just like Joshua of the Old Testament. Some people today will look at this term, and they'll look at it in the original, and they, say, they will say, that's Yeshua. It doesn't matter if you call him Joshua, or Yeshua, or Jesus, or what, you know, Jesus, or whatever. The word itself means Savior. So you're going to call him Jesus, or Joshua, or Yeshua, because it means Savior, and that's what he is. Notice verse 21. He'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I'm reminded that a number of times in the Gospels, this was emphasized. And I think I put the idea, Luke 19. Remember the appearance to Zacchaeus, and how Jesus said in verses 9 and 10, Salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus. Because, verse 10 or 4, the Son of Man is come. The very purpose for coming is to seek and to save that which was lost. Or to the woman at John, in John 4, I don't think I put this on there, but the woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman, where they were discussing the whole idea of religion. You say, you know, we say Gerizim, you say the mountain in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, the time, the hour is coming, and now is, when they that worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. I did that last Sunday morning, remember. But as Jesus goes on to tell her, we worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. You know what he is saying there? Salvation to the entire world only comes through me, is what Jesus is saying. You cannot be saved, you cannot get to God through any other Savior born at any other time, in any other country, of any other ethnic background. Salvation is of the Jews. Now, I know there were Native American tribes from time to time. I like studying that history. And various ones of them would have what they would call, essentially, a Messiah, an anointed one, a leader who was going to unite all the tribes and all of that kind of thing. That person cannot be a Savior. He is not a Messiah. And maybe we might look to, you know, Islam and Muhammad, and we might look to a Joseph Smith, and we might look to any of a number of other people whom people have claimed salvation to come through. Salvation is of the Jews. And whether I 
want to consider a Jew as my Savior, or I want to consider a 2,000-year-old man as my Savior or not, Jesus is clearly saying, and I believe the Bible is clearly demonstrating, this is the Son of God, born miraculously to a virgin who came 2,000 years ago from heaven to save us, and He's the Savior. He alone is the Jesus, if you will, the Savior of the world. And he's the only one. And we might look, and we've been studying at Wendy's, and I'm not going to go through this. Some of these passages I've emphasized recently, you know, with Peter and so forth. But we might look at John 1. And we might talk about how he alone is the Son of God, originally with God for all eternity, who created the world. Nothing was made that wasn't made by him. He was the light of the world, John 1, beginning in verse 5 there. He came to his own, and they did not receive him. And the idea there is they would not take it. And that's the way we would say it today. They just wouldn't take it. No, not you. I'm not having you. They wouldn't take it. We might go on to chapter 6 where he was giving that great sermon, you know, before he, when he fed uh, the 5,000, etc. And how he has said to them, if you're looking at John 6 and verse 4, everyone that comes to God is going to be taught of God. And they're going to be taught about me. I am the bread of heaven. No one else. I am the one that came to feed you spiritually. And you're going to have to feed on me if you want to save you. You're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And there is no one else that you can buy into like that. Heart, mind, body, and soul. But Jesus he is the only Savior. And that's why we would go to various passages, and I wrote them down. You can grab an outline and see some of these, and I could have put many more. That's why Ephesians 4 and verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but one Lord. Or Matthew chapter 23, and how he would say to the Pharisees, you call many people master, rabbi, teacher. And why is that so important? Matter of fact, I'm going to turn over there and look at that. Go with me to Matthew 23 for a moment. Because the thing is, we look through the New Testament, and, and, and some question this even and ask about this. Is it wrong then to call somebody a teacher? No, it's not. But it is like he's talking about. Look with me, if you will, down at verse 8. Be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master. Rabbi is the Hebrew word, master is the Greek word, even Christ, and both of them mean teacher. Well, why is it wrong to call somebody a teacher? It's not. But notice he emphasizes that again in verse 10 when he says, Don't be called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. This is why. And I think the best way to illustrate it is to go back to something that I'm very familiar with and some of you are. But if you go back to martial arts and you look at a teacher, when you study a discipline under a teacher in martial arts, and especially if you buy into the whole oriental culture behind that, it is more than a teacher. It's not somebody just teaching you how to throw a punch or land a kick or something. It's way more than that. It is meant that you will follow the philosophy. You will listen to the teacher when he talks about life, when he talks about what's important, when he talks about the way that you should conduct yourself and carry yourself, and on and on it would go. Now, transfer that to some of the teachers of Jesus' day. There were rabbis, there were teachers who were coming along and they were saying to the Jews, this is how you should do it. And they were buying into that, even, as Jesus would say, to the exclusion of what God says. And Jesus said, don't 
follow a person like that. When you say the word teacher, when you say the word master, and if in your mind there is any reverence whatsoever for that person, why do we not call Michael and Wes or whoever, you know, Bill Eccles or anybody else that comes here and preaches, why do we not call them reverent? Everybody else does. Everybody else out in the world would say Reverend Michael. I go out into public, you know, get my hair cut, whatever it might be. Somebody says, what do you do? I say, I preach. Oh, I'm sorry, Reverend. I'm like, don't be, you know. I'm just a human being. But Psalm 111 would say, holy and reverend is my name. And it doesn't even have to do with the name Jesus. It has to do with his authority. Jesus is the one great master. Reverence him. And I stand up here and preach. I tell you what the Bible says. Great. Follow it. Listen to it. Look at it. Question it. And if it's what God says, do it because God says it. And if it's not, reject it because Michael White is not the reverend. He's not the pastor. He's not the Savior by any means. Don't be called Master, Jesus said. You only have one. There's one mediator. Only one person that stands between you and God who touches both sides. And that's what a mediator is. God and man. No other human being but Jesus. One judge in Acts, the book of Acts, in chapter 10, again in chapter 17, as I gave you the references. Clearly, the apostles would teach there's one standard of judgment. Not Paul, not Peter, not this church at East Orange or anyone on earth. Jesus alone. God will judge us by. One, if you go back to Matthew 1, if you're still open there, or you want to turn back there, you'll notice as Gabriel said, call him Jesus, remember? The Savior. What makes him, what gives him the ability to be the Savior? Well, it's what Gabriel went on to say. Call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the, the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What does that mean? Well, the L part means God. The Imanu means with us. Jesus alone, when he was on earth, was God with us. And last Sunday I was talking about John 21, and I said at the end of the sermon, got a little emotional, I know that, but I said at the end of the sermon, I always come back to Jesus. Perfection on earth. The only time God has been on earth, among us, with us, and the only time God is with us is in Jesus. The church versus many churches. There were several questions this morning, remember, about that. And I thought there might be some questions. Questions about what about other churches and what about other denominations. And sometimes as human beings... It comes down, we look at all of that, and we sort of look at it like we do football teams, you know. A lot of football being played today. People have their teams. I love the Steelers, you know. I mean, we all have our teams. And if we want to talk about something like football, and I want to say my team, you know, Alabama versus your team, West, Auburn, we argue all day, have a lot of fun with that. But, you know, we both understand that that's just what it is. It's just entertainment. It's just a football team, etc. When we're talking about the church, or we're talking about churches, we're talking about a body of people 
who should be pledging, and I think most of them would consider that they are pledging allegiance to Jesus. Not just some football team that you can take or leave. That it's okay if you follow them, it's okay if you don't. Choose something, somebody else or whatever if you want to. It's all good fun, or should be. We're not talking about that. We're talking about what group of people is going to honor the Lord. So if I ever get in my mind, my church is better than your church. I don't even care if you're in the right one, I think that's wrong. No, it's not that. The question is, always and only, is my church, the one I've chosen to be part of, you know, the one I have a saved to join with, as we were talking about in one of the questions this morning, is my church devoted to Jesus? And that's the only question. Because to the world, there are all kinds of recognized bodies of faith. There are even confederation of bodies. And if we want to go into the whole ecumenical movement, everybody is united. And as long as we can unite on maybe this one point, or at Liberty down in Virginia when I was going to school, these ten points are fundamental. Fundamental means foundational, basis of something. And if you can agree on these ten points, the the rest of it doesn't matter. Where did Jesus ever say that? Where did Jesus ever say, get it down to one point, do you believe in me or do you not? Or get it down to ten points, you know, that you believe in me, but also that I'm resurrected from the dead and that the Bible is inspired and add a few other things to it. Where did the Lord ever say that's all that's important? He never did. In fact, what he says is just the opposite. I'm the Lord. I have all authority, Matthew 28. I'll teach you everything I want. And you go out in the world and you teach everybody else everything I want. And if they love me and they honor me and they want to be devoted to me, they'll do to the best of their ability everything I want. So it really doesn't matter if the name on the building is Church of Christ or something else, if it's my church, your church, or anybody else's church, the only question that's important is, are we, to the best of our ability, doing everything God says do? And that's something we need to continue to question. We have these business meetings, we get together, we discuss things. It is important that we're always striving together to reach the whole truth. When we discuss like we did this morning, when we gather together like we have this evening, that's the only important thing. It has nothing to do with personal preference, what I want, what I'd rather, what I like better than something else. That doesn't even, that's not even part of the discussion as far as God is concerned. It is always what the Lord wants. And so we look at, and, and you might just go to the book of Ephesians and notice some of the things that are talked about when you talk about the church. God recognizes one group of people. We may or may not be it, and I want you to understand that. But he recognizes one body of people on this earth who are the church, who are his body, Jesus' body. And he alone is the head. It is, you know, chapter 2, the one household of God. Like Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 3, where apostles and prophets of the first century, as wise master builders, built on that chief cornerstone, that foundation of Jesus. One household. It is the church, the body, wherein is the very glory of God. You know, Ephesians 3, verse 21. In her, and only in her, is the glory of God. 
Or we could put it in very simple language in chapter 4, and we could look at 1-4, there is one body. But that one body, verses 11 through 16, recognizes the need for every single part of it, every member of it, to contribute toward building itself up in the faith so that we might be everything Jesus wants us to be. And none of us can do that by ourselves. Someone asked a question this morning, you may remember it. What if I or a group of people wanted to separate from this church and go over, you know, wherever, to wherever, and start another church? We didn't want to call ourselves the same thing, and we didn't want to be in fellowship with the one we left, but we did the same things. Would that be okay? And you may remember how I answered that. First of all, if you're going over here and doing exactly the same thing, you know, why would you... And I understand the idea of planting new churches. Don't miss, And that wasn't the question. But if you're just going to divide from someone, not be in fellowship with someone, but go over here and do the exact same thing, why would you do that? No. We are all the same. Whether we're Chinese or Filipinos or, you know, down in Belize in South America or in Mexico or somewhere across the United States or wherever it might be, if we are part of the body of Christ and all members contributing to the building up of itself, we're the same thing. If we're doing what the Lord wants us to do, we are the one body of the Lord. Finally, the faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians 4 or 5. The faith versus many faiths. I've told you before... It was very impressionable on me. I had just started preaching, but I listened to a lecture by a very well-known um, preacher, lecturer, and he was talking about faith, and he, he was just hammering, pounding the pulpit or whatever, wherever he was, and he was saying, faith is the most important thing. Not any particular faith. What faith you have is unimportant as long as you have faith. And it was very impressionable because as I listened, and the guy was a great speaker. I mean, he really was. I could listen to him all day long. But I thought about years ago, and I still think about now, how wrong that concept is. If faith is unimportant, if it doesn't matter that whatever faith you hold is just that you have faith, that you're so strongly drawn to it, you so strongly believe in it, but it does not matter, why would God say one faith? One faith can only mean one thing, logically, that God only recognizes one faith. Now, that may seem exclusive to the world and most of the billions within it. It may be too restrictive. They may even look down on you because you believe there is one faith, just as you believe there's one church, just as you believe there is one Savior, one Lord, one foundation. And yet God is saying, though the world may recognize many faiths, many creeds, many religious organizations, many dispensations even. There has always only been one. I don't have time to really go into it tonight, but I want to give you a passage, and I'd like for you to go home and really look at this. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to turn over there quickly, and I'm going to point something out. But look at Ephesians 1, and start in verse 3, and notice how Paul makes this point. What Paul is saying is, there has only ever been one dispensation. And you heard me right. Uh, you know, not many. Not God trying something for a while and it didn't work. And God said, let me come up with this plan. No, that didn't work either. So let me get to this plan. Finally coming 
to Christianity and saying, well, that's it. That's my final word. That's what I'm doing. Paul is saying just the opposite. Paul is saying God had a plan. One, one economy, and that's what the word dispensation literally means, and you will find that if you look in Ephesians 1, down in verse 010. God always only had one economy, one economical plan, and that plan was Christianity. And everything God did, whether it was in the Garden of Eden, the Law of Moses, everything God ever did was leading to that one plan. How do we know that? Look at Ephesians 1. When did God plan to adopt people in Christ? When he finally got through the whatever number, and people have different numbers, three, four, seventh dispensation, and said, well, I'm going to do it this way now. No. Before he ever made man, before the world was ever created, God said, I've got a plan, it's Christianity, and that's where we're getting to. And you can go home and read that for yourself, but just notice, once you read through that, if you come away with that idea, then what you're saying is, you know what, this is not new. And this is not exclusive to me, and it's not, you know, somewhere, I mean, some group of people got together and decided, this is what we do, this is how we do it. Sometimes we even get asked that question. How do we determine what we do here at East Orange? Do some group of you guys get together and decide it? No, <laughs> we don't. Oh, I mean, judgment calls about whether or not we buy something like this to help in the teaching, we do. But deciding whether or not we practice the Lord's Supper or baptism or any of a host of other things that God has taught about, our only question is, what does the Bible say? Now, we may not understand it. There have been plenty of times when I haven't. But that's the question. And so as we look at the faith, our question, our fundamental question is the same one Paul had. Lord, what would you have me to do? Because there's only one faith, there's only one way of doing things, and that's Jesus' way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's only been one faith once delivered to the saints, Jude 3, and that's what I've got to believe. That's what I've got to be part of. But we could go on and on, but I'm not. Laying the foundation is important to know what the foundation is, to strive to build wisely and correctly on the foundation is the question. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, this has been a day about asking what's right, what's not right, and all of that kind of thing. It is important. And I believe that it's important. And I think that as we look around, we see that that is still of great concern to a number of people. Like I said, even one of our visitors today, and that was encouraging. If you're here tonight and you look at the Word of God and you listen to the plan of Christ and you know that what He wants from you is to confess that He's the Son of God, to change your life, to be baptized for forgiveness of your sins and to begin the life of a Christian, you have that opportunity. And if you're here tonight and you've done that and you're saying, you know what, I know what the Lord wants me to be. He wants me to be righteous. He wants me to always, every day, recommit to do just that. Maybe you'd like to ask for the prayers of the people here. Please come.